Thank you. So, hello everyone again, those of you who were here last week, and hello, good evening, those of you who weren't here. I'm um, going to be here for a few weeks and talking about these these qualities that of heart and mind that are that are very um, central to Buddhist practice and to meditation practice. So I notice we don't uh, have that many people tonight, but we're all spread out. We could we could get closer if we wanted. <laughs> you don't have to if you feel really comfortable, but it's. Uh, it creates a nice feeling when we get in closer and get comfortable, let ourselves be comfortable. It's, um, sometimes I get the image of it's like uh, around the campfire when we were kids, you know, we just get in and uh, remember the stories that we've always known but that um, for some strange reason we forget. Uh, (laughs) It's funny that it works that way, but it does work that way. So we gather around and um, remind ourselves, tell these old stories again and again of of our being here, of our lives, of our journey, of our humanness. So I'll talk about some of those parts of our humanness tonight. So tonight I wanted to um, to work with and explore morality and patience. And last week when I gave the introduction to the paramis or paramitas, these qualities of heart and mind, um, I, uh, I said that they follow an order traditionally and that I'd be kind of playing around with that. And so I'm grouping these two a little bit out of the traditional order, morality and patience. And, and the, you know, after I, I just knew that, these, uh, that it was right to do these at this particular time and the circumstances this week and just what was coming up in my mind, it was right for me to put them together. But then after I had started thinking about them and reflecting and um, writing a little outline, I realized, oh, this really sounds like a lecture, morality and patience. Oh, my goodness. So, well, it's hopefully not going to be quite that uh, grim, you know, morality and patience. And in fact, I have a little, um, so what do we, where do we get the charge out of morality and patience? We've heard those words probably a lot in a long time, but where do they touch our lives? Where do they touch our, where do they touch us? Can we feel those places? Can we bring our awareness to those places where they touch us? So I've got a little list that when I first started you know, speaking about the paramis, um, kind of the outlines of this list came to me, and Buddhists are famous for 
doing lists, and I like to do lists, so I thought, well. So this is the Paramis. Um, which are, sometimes it came to my mind that they're like the unobtainable virtues. These are these ways of being in the world and, you know, we can call them these lovely names like wholesome qualities of heart and mind, which they definitely are. But, um, but they also look a little bit like and sound a little bit like unobtainable virtues. And so then I have this parallel list, which is, there's the paramis, and then there's what works. So if the paramis are unobtainable virtues, then, then what works is what's a useful quality, what are useful qualities in our lives. So I'll go over them again, the, the, uh, the paramis that we're going to be working with, and generosity, and that's what I spoke about and we explored a little bit last week. Um, so generosity, a wonderful-sounding thing, and... And it is wonderful, but how? So, under the list of what works, it's, it feels good to give, and receiving doesn't hurt. And then the next uh, parami is virtue or morality. And um, we'll, I'll be speaking on that tonight. And that under the useful qualities is R-E-S-P-E-C-T. It's um, respecting. It's looking at things again. So what is morality? Uh, What is virtue? Looking at things again is how it can be useful in our lives. Energy, of course, is keeping fit. Keeping fit. In whatever way that may come to us, in whatever situation that may come to us. And patience uh, as a parami in what's useful in life and what works, it's power outage. It's when the power goes out and you're there and you don't have any control over it. What does that bring up? It brings up resourcefulness. It brings up attending. Uh, it brings up perseverance. And it also brings up tolerance. Um, at least in my list. Um, and then the parami of meditation and mindfulness. Meditation, mindfulness. Uh, what's useful is openness and curiosity. Our natural human curiosity. And wisdom, we'll also be working with in this series, Um, that's up close and intimate. Intimacy. Uh, It's also seeing clearly, seeing clearly what is in whatever situation and whatever level uh, we're exploring and looking at or whatever comes up in our life. Wisdom is also lending a hand, reaching out to support. When we do see clearly, we naturally lend a hand, reach out to support what needs supporting in our own selves and in the world around us, in our particular world of work and family and and also in the larger world as we see. 
So to um, to start off with um, virtue, morality, ethical conduct. These are all translations of this particular parami. So this Buddhism is um, is kind of as far as morality and ethics. It's a situational ethics, you know, par excellence. It's really it really depends on the situation. And and this worried me quite a bit when I first began <laughs> practicing meditation and realized I was like looking at kind of a Buddhist worldview and thought, well, wait a minute, if this is, you know, fine, I'm, I'm for situational ethics, but I mean, you, you've got to draw the line somewhere and where does this, you know, how does this happen? Where does this, uh, how does this work here? How, do, how can we work with engagement and confidence and conviction and, and not be detached and kind of removed and uh, cut off? Um, and, and the key is respecting. So res- keeping our respect, seeing how to act, looking again at how we might act. Instead of a rule book, for example, Buddhism does have the precepts, which are part of um, which are part of this morality in Buddhism and the paramis. But it's more in the light of a, not a rule book, but in this, a light of recognizing one's own wisdom, trusting that one's own wisdom and one's own deep impulses are moral. And with this, our confidence builds so that we actually do feel we have a ground in different situations, so that we can see situational ethics can indeed uh, bring us to act wisely, or we can act wisely within situational ethics. What happens is we become aware of our inner resources, um, and that helps us steer in every situation. It's like uh, if you've ever been sailing. You're, I mean, you can have charts when you're sailing, and that's often very helpful, but uh, people often didn't sail without charts. Before charts, there were just landfalls, and uh, there were stars. I mean, there are guideposts, and we can make this rough comparison, this analogy between things like the precepts uh, as being maybe pinpoints of light, stars that we can look at every now and then or that come up for us every now and then. But really we're on a big ocean of our lives and our engagement with every this huge world that we live in, this universe that we live in, really. Uh, so we can learn to steer, to sail the boat over this ocean that's our lives. We're, we're naming creatures. Uh, that's part of us. So we, as human beings, so we we call these forms of wisdom the paramis, or the they're called the virtues, and also in ancient Greek philosophy and in Christianity. Um, but they're really our inner resources, and we know we have them. And our meditation practice allows us to see more and more clearly that we have them, become more confident in them, uh, and how to use them, how to be with them in the world. So morality in Buddhism, sila, or shila in uh, Sanskrit, 
is often linked with the precepts. And they're said to be descriptions more than prescriptions or rule books or, you know, engraved ways to act. They're considered to be natural expressions of the awakening and awakened minds. So those are, those are words that are used in the texts. Um, this is, this is, this is our, our nature, uh, the precepts. In other words, we don't harm. We take only what's offered. We tell the truth. We reserve our sexuality. We refrain from using substances that cloud the mind, such as drugs and alcohol. And we moderate our distractions. So those are the precepts, which are, as you also recognize well, are held in common with many other um, religious, philosophical ways of being in the world. Um, but they're part of our awakening minds. They're there with us all the time. You just need to remember to, uh, that they're there, to, to, to look for them, to respect them, to look again for them. So when we become aware of these ways, I, for another kind of sailing analogy, when we, when we really apprehend them, they are like a compass or a gyroscope. They, know, they help us know where we are in each moment in our journey. And we don't really even have to think about them, like am I being moral here? We can, and that's often helpful, and sometimes that is the situation we, we will want to. But really... They're built in. They're us. And what our what meditation practice does is it allows us to widen our scope. So to to not only look respect and look again, but to see more and look include more in our in our vision. Tune into a larger picture. We see that we can include more. And that naturally one of my favorite quotes from Buddhist text is from Shanti Deva, who was um, who was um, in the Mahayana tradition, uh, which is Zen Buddhism and um, and Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, he was an Indian figure, but he he, he was uh, central to the Mahayana understanding, Zen and Tibetan understanding of of the idea of the bodhisattva and in his um, treatise on what it means to be a bodhisattva an awakening being in the world an ordinary human being awakening um, he, he said many things but one of my favorites is one should be the pupil of everyone all the time um, that's kind of got a should state in it, in the translation that I, that I know. But it's um, when one looks at, um, at what the precepts are, what our morality is in the world, we see that we do learn all the time from the situations that arise. On, it's kind of a, a two-way reflection process 
uh, a feedback loop in a sense that we have this natural expression of morality and virtue and we see what that is by being in the world uh, and by being open and aware to learning from every situation, everyone. So, if in Buddhism it says that, um, that, that the precepts can describe and help us uh, understand several parts of our lives, that they're formulations of how to recognize wholesome and unwholesome states, so they're kind of self-correcting and we can kind of see where we're like maybe edging over uh, into something that doesn't feel quite right. Um, and they mirror us, again, as I just used that analogy, and other beings. That, that is so we can see some of the deeper, um, the deeper uh, parts of human reality that Buddhism, that Buddhism offers us to see. For instance, our interconnection and our interdependence with, um, with other beings in the world. So when we pay attention, which, we, which we're cultivating doing in our mindfulness practice, uh, then we, we can, can become aware of, of these virtues within us arising naturally. You know, and so it's it's kind of two-sided. Often the precepts are put in in the negative form, the thou shalt not form. Uh, but it's it's in a way what what an analogy I like to use that's helpful to me. It's it's the work of weeding and kind of double digging. If you're a gardener, you you know when you. Uh, you just, when you start to see, you can actually see, oh, well, this is, uh, there's nothing necessarily even wrong with that plant. Uh, because some gardeners say a weed is a plant in the wrong place. But, um, but you see that you don't, that that doesn't feel right and seem right. And so you have a choice to make. You can, you can act on that and you can... Um, you can remove that weed, and you can also prepare the ground. In a way, the morality and the precepts allow us to do that more deeply, to get down to the double digging, to get to the deeper places. Because uh, Buddhism has a great deal of common sense in it, I've found. And we know we can't get a great harvest unless we do the work of preparing the ground. Um, you know, another saying which you may have heard, uh, I, I've heard it many times from many different Buddhist teachers, and I, I still like to say it and remind myself of it because it's so true. It's, uh, this practice is simple but not easy. No one ever said it was easy. Um, So on the positive, the positive kind of formulation, just to let you know that there, that in all the history of Buddhism uh, and the many, many, you know, libraries full of writings on Buddhism, that some 
people thought of putting these precepts in a positive way. And in the Mahayana, um, for instance, if you're a Zen practitioner, there are the pure precepts, which are embracing and sustaining right conduct, embracing and sustaining every good, embracing and sustaining all beings. Um, so, so you can also look at it from, from that other side. Maybe that's a more positive way, which is, a, which is appealing and necessary for us to remember sometimes. And of course, the pure includes the impure. I think we have to always remember that. And otherwise we get off into idealisms, which, uh, as we know, are dangerous. And um, one of the beauties of the Buddhist way, I think, is that how it affects the, the reconciliation of opposites. We sort of learn to rest and rock in the cradle of our lives, which are full of paradoxes. So they're all, they're all in there. The pure, um, the pure is, and the impure are part and parcel of what we begin to see and understand and be at ease with. And part of this is like when we, when we start to tune into the, to our morality and our virtue and how in a conscious and aware way and how it's actually playing out in our lives, uh, we see that, um, that we're not gripping and pushing, but sometimes we do start to grip and push a little. And that's fine too, that's to see that. We can accept that. We do become a little idealistic or greedy. And here, here's where mindfulness can help us. This is our basic honesty. This is, we can have self-honesty as well, not, not covering up things from ourselves. Uh, that's part of our morality, too. Another thing I think is each one of us, of course, has a whole unique constellation of life and life circumstances. So each of us knows what our practice is. Um, but, but I think it's also perhaps useful uh, to, to tune in to um, which precepts we live by for ourselves, kind of noticing which ones really operate in us and our particular shadings of them, which ones we like and which ones we don't like, which ones we fudge on a little bit, or which ones we feel very virtuous about, like I'm, I know that one. I've got that one cold. And, you know, and when we feel the re- refreshment and, and the harmony of just living a respectful life. Because of, this practice is not about perfection, even though, as I said in the first talk, these are often translated as the perfections. Uh, our Buddhist practice is about awakening, being awake, not being perfect. You know, and this is very interesting to know that we needn't get caught by remorse or guilt. It's not to say that that remorse or guilt do not arise. I, I, uh, from my own place, I can say very clearly they do arise. Um, but we can know them and feel them and still allow each moment 
of our lives to also arrive, the next moment and the next and the next. In other words, we don't have to get caught by them. We don't have to... uh, We don't have to let them hold on to us, grip us. Um, Angie Boisevan, who's one of my teachers, you may know her because she teaches here sometimes as well, uh, says, likes to say, the precepts are impossible to keep. And that's uh, really true. So once we really know that, just we can kind of rest in them. They are there, they're... they're uh, They're like the stars we can set our compasses by to guide us, but um, it's not that we have to keep them and hang on to them. We can live virtuous lives at the same time that they're impossible in one of these paradoxes that just works that way. We can also live virtuous lives, and the more we open to them, one would think from the outside of just like this were not a practice that we didn't have actual empirical, direct, mindful experience of. One would think, well, how can, you know, it, this sounds contradictory. Once we tune into how we can't, how they're impossible to keep, then we're just going to feel, you know, guilty and terrible and we're not, you know, how's this going to work? But it does work that way. Uh, once we tune into them, um, We see they're impossible to keep, and yet we find ourselves living with more ease and living with more virtue. So the other um, parami I wanted to mention uh, tonight and touch on anyway is patience, which is in our everyday lives, perhaps the biggest ground of of places we can just work with. Endless opportunities with patience. To our last breath, we can always attend to what's happening. Uh, And as I said, patience was in what works. It's the power outage. It's resourcefulness and attending. It's... uh, and tolerance and non-expectation. When we come to see our expectations arise, because of course they'll arise, you know, we can just let them stand in abeyance. We can just let them be over there for a while. Okay, yeah, I expect that. And uh, patience allows us the time to contact wisdom. Also how the paramis all work together. It's really kind of impossible. They all kind of come up together in a way. But we just have language, so we, we, we will necessarily talk with them one at a time. But uh, patience really puts us in contact with wisdom. And it's most helpful and easeful in enduring the difficulties of our existence. You know, the everyday slings and arrows of outrageous fortunes. Patience, and of course, this is not necessarily... Uh, a, a solely Buddhist insight. This is uh, this is human wisdom from many traditions. Um, so we're we're constructed so that we need a long time to mature. That's just the way we are as human beings. And so patience is just 
that's what for me seem, seems so central, um, so essential. The Dalai Lama says, if we work hard, there, and you know, he says this, like, I saw this on a, on a tape, and he says this in this very excited Dalai Lama way. He gets very enthusiastic. He goes, if we just work hard 30 or 40 years, then we see the fruits of our work. <laughs> he goes, yes, well, but we live in a particularly, in a particularly fast want it all and want it now kind of society. So this is, uh, patience is a real lovely uh, ground for us to work with. But, you know, actually my sense is that, that we as humans have been this way for a long time. It's not just our society, you know. We have that kind of built in too. We want it. Look at ch- children are my main reason for this sense. Uh, you know, they want it. So, but the long view characterizes patience and also the broad view, you know. And, and we can actually sense this through our meditation practice. We can see this developing in our minds and bodies that when we loosen our grip on the short view and wanting something right away, we see light. It's like coming out of a tunnel and we see a much bigger and brighter view. And... Our practice is both a cause and a condition for seeing this this ocean of patience that we can that we can sail over, and 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 developing our abilities to sail over it or swim in it. When we sit down already, we've we've gone a long way on over this ocean. We're continuing a long path. When we sit down in meditation, we've undertaken already that first intention and vow, whether we've formulated it to ourselves consciously or not, that the Buddha called noble to understand who we really are and who we are manifests itself through our patience right here, right now, in this chair and on this cushion. And it's also a feedback loop because through our patience that we cultivate here, we begin to see life as it really is, our lives individually and our, and our, our larger life, where it's not just the little me. Um, our patience deepens and broadens, and as it does, we become more able to accept and to forgive, and we become more tolerant. And as we become more tolerant, more opportunities for wise action appear to us. Um, opportunities that we could never have uh, predicted or foreseen. They come in the moment, and when we are patient and tolerant, we can see them. They appear to us. So I'm uh, running on a little tonight. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll skip the part about... Uh, Patience being an approximate cause for understanding karma, but if anyone wants to ask a question about that, they they could do that. Uh, <laughs> but I do want to um, do want to talk about the forbearance attitude of, or part of patience, because that's another word that that's another side of patience is forbearance. And there's a lovely metaphor for Buddhism, so I do want to put this out from Buddhism. Gentle forbearance is the garment of the Buddhas. 
And, and Buddhas themselves are mythically and famously patient, you know, through incalculable time. The kalpas, do you know that definition of a kalpa is uh, a bird flying over the Himalayas with a silk scarf, the time it takes to wear the mountains to sea level. So that's one kalpa. And then there are hundreds of millions of kalpas. Um, so, and also I wanted to quote from a treatise on the, uh, the, the Paramis. It's kind of an early in-between Theravada and Mahayana treatise uh, called the Dhammapala about patience, uh, just because it has some lovely metaphors in it. Patience does this, dispels anger. And this is, this is huge in our lives, I think. Uh, in our, we are kind of hardwired to, to express anger and be anger in some ways. But it's also something that we, that we can mature and learn to live with and learn to let go of, learn to release. So patience dispels anger, and it is a mantra for quelling the poisonous speech of evil people. Patience is the basis for acquiring a good reputation. Patience is an ocean because of its depth, a door that closes the entrance to the plain of misery, the ground for the habitation of all noble qualities, and the supreme purification of body, speech, and mind. So it's pretty powerful, according to what uh, Buddhists think about it. It also says um, to not forget that a wrongdoer, someone we might be angry with, uh, is a benefactor, for he is the basis of developing patience. Yes, when we can see that even those people who um, who intend to harm us or who might harm us, we can be patient with. I just read a review of a new book that I think I'm going to read. It's it's a novel, and I've forgotten the name of it I, um, right now. I'll bring it back to you next week and... Um, and, and the story is about this, this thing about a, um, a, woman, a young woman who, it's set in modern day America, a young woman who uh, someone tries to kill her, a person who's trying to kill himself on the streets of New York. And, and, and he doesn't want to die alone, so he tries to kill her. And she, through the power of, we won't go into the whole plot as I recall it, but through a kind of an arising of a patience, a recognition uh, of of this being and this situation and herself, a natural arising, she uh, she convinces him not to kill her. And uh, she had a sort of a patient quality, the way the review described it. I don't know. I haven't read the book, but so and one. Um, Last thing I would like to do is to 
read you a poem. I think I brought this book. This is from Juan May uh, called I Don't Bow to Buddhas. Juan May was an 18th century Chinese poet who lived in an end of the empire, very corrupt time. He, he was a Buddhist, but he was a, a very unorthodox, iconoclastic Buddhist because the, the Buddhism of the time was kind of very corrupt, and at least he thought so. And he has a lot of fun poems in here. This poem is called Just Done. Just Done. All the heart needs is a home in which to dwell in quiet. The flavor of desirelessness lasts longest. So a boy runs off to snatch at floating willow silks. If he didn't capture them, how could he let them go? If we don't see our moralities, our immoralities, how can we let them go? So, uh, thank you for your patience and uh, tolerance and all of that. And if you all would, um, if anyone has any comments or questions or like to speak. Now is the time. Hmm. Perhaps we'd like to sit quietly for the last few minutes and Taste that flavor of desirelessness, which lasts longest. May our virtue, our patience, our practice benefit every being.